0: <laughs> so, uh, good, evening. good evening We have a nearly impossible task before us tonight The chapters that we'll be covering are Jeremiah 24 and 25 Wow! They are dense and deeply profound connections to the holistic Bible narrative wow. That's good though That means you're about to understand the whole Bible better it would be easy to spend hours on the connections between this content and the entirety of the book of Revelation, or the book of Matthew, or the book of Daniel, wow. or the book of Habakkuk. We could just keep going and going. We're going to do our best to highlight tonight the thematic connections with enough detail for you to gain perspective, but without so much complexity. That you become lost in the details. Needless to say, we have our work cut out for us. We want to begin by reviewing a few things
1: from last week. We're going to just do it by the scriptures themselves. So last week we went through Jeremiah twenty three. In Jeremiah twenty three, eighteen, we read, But which of them has stood in the council of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? We learned in this passage that God is asking who has stood in the council with a C. He's talking about the body, the council of God, not the council with an S. We also learned that this word council in the Hebrew is sowed. God is asking who has heard the secret things that I am proclaiming in my council. Now, we've seen in Jeremiah that Jeremiah has a difficult situation to face. He is a true prophet that has always had to contend with the wayward souls of men as well as competing, as well as the competing false hopes given by false prophets. He has to battle both of those. The false prophet has his own message, not God's. He conveys his own emotions, not God's emotions. Could there be any more of a sobering warning for our time in America today? Yeah. Now consider Lamentations 2.14 that Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah existed in this time where he had to combat both things, and then he lived to write the result. The visions of your prophets were worthless. They did not ward off your sin or captivity. In Jeremiah 23.18, we, we also saw that Jeremiah both saw and heard The word of the Lord. Say that with me. Saul Saul, Saul and heard the word of the Lord. This is true in many ways of all the prophets from Abraham in Genesis 15. When he saw a vision of the word of the Lord to John in revelation. When he is seeing a revelation of the word as it happens in the end time. Seeing and hearing should be understood in a literal sense, not figurative but also as being fully impacted by God's word so that they can fully represent God to others around them. Who wants to be fully impacted by God's word?
0: Then we have to see it. We have to hear it. Oh man, we even
1: got to write it down. So some things that you should have taken away from these concepts are that there is one real counsel. Say that with me. One, one. Real council with all other forms constituting collectively one false council of the world. So there's one real council, there's one false council that has many different expressions through the false council. This means that our directions, think about this with me, church, our directions either come from the throne of God or the rebellion of Satan. With no gray areas in between their two. Wow. There's no if, maybe, or but. It is either from the throne of God or from the rebellion of Satan. Now, we also learned that the canon and the council are the cure. Amen. Amen. The cure to the council is to have the canon and the council, the spirit and the word, as being the cure for standing in his council. We must see him, we must see his character. We must see his attributes. We must see who he is. And we have to hear what he is saying. His word. We have to see him, hear him, and then mark it down what we are receiving as we see him and hear him. Do you guys remember that? Yes. Have you been marking things down that the Lord has shown you and what you've seen of him? Yes. Yes. Have you been writing it in your remembers? Yes.
0: Good. We look forward to hearing that.
2: Another pivotal scripture from last week. Chapter 23 was verse 21. It said, I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. Look, there is only one real gospel. It's the same gospel that the prophets all the way through the Newer Testament, through the epistles, Revelation, and beyond. There is one gospel But there's also opposition to that one gospel. There's another false gospel. And although there are many expressions of the false gospel, there is a one-on-one battle between truth and between something that is absolutely false and in opposition to that truth. We took some time on this specific concept to go through 2 Samuel 18, and we looked at the story of Ahimas.
0: Come on, Abimbola, you remember it? Ahimaz. Man,
2: people like (laughs) Ahimaz, they just want to run, man. It doesn't matter if they've been in the council of the Lord. It doesn't matter if they've been in the canon. They just want to run with whatever they think that they
0: have. He should have stayed in seminary another year.
2: And so instead of being (laughs) cured by the word of God and being cured by the spirit of God, people have a tendency to grab a hold of something and just run with it, man. I'm just excited about this. I'm going to run. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 was a passage that we talked about that was a warning against this. Paul was talking to the church in Galatia and he said, Hey, all kinds of people are corrupting the gospel. The gospel is being corrupted wherever you were. And he he had an admonition to that specific church and to us. He said, Hey, the cure for this is to make sure that you are in the canon and that you are absolutely in the counsel of God these two witnesses will make sure that the gospel that is being passed down to you does not
3: get corrupted. Um, um, Saints, in order to prepare you for what is coming this evening, I want to revisit the potter's house with you for just a moment. Got a slide we're going to throw on the screen here. You should remember from Jeremiah 18 forward that the Lord speaking about Israel, yes. This, the pot he was shaking from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot shaping it to him as he seems best. From Jeremiah 18, we learn that Israel has a national destiny that will be fulfilled. Romans 9, 21, (laughs) Paul commenting on this very subject says, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay? Come on. Lovely Israeli lumps. Same lumps. Yes, national destiny (laughs) of Israel holistically. Some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. Now, while Israel has a national destiny, some generations will refer noble or common use. Mm. Jeremiah 1911 comments on this. And say to them, this is what the Lord says, I will smash this nation and this city just as the potter's jar is smashed. This is Jeremiah commenting on a generation that would not be formed in the potter's hand. But the same lump of clay Messiah is still working through to form Israel into its holistic national destiny. The lump of clay is never done away with. Just one vessel that determined by its own actions it was only fit for common use.
0: Now you guys remembered all of that, right? We've been reviewing this stuff for a while. It's important, but I want to give you a... Small story for a second to set the stage for the chapters we're about to read. Come then on. we're gonna pray that the Lord helps you absorb it. Okay? Yeah. Y'all ready for it?
4: Yeah.
0: What we're gonna encounter tonight is a little bit like a man. Who's a man in here? I am Spence, stand up. Yeah. Yeah. Big, man. big old boy, aren't you? Stand <laughs> up, big boy. You're worth more than two cents, Spence. Yeah. A little bit like a man with his own son and many servants. Somebody say servants. Servants. The man is displeased that his son and his servants have become disobedient in the same way. Look displeased, Spence. Okay. So the man, Spence in this case, takes one of his servants. Grab a servant. We're going to make that the son grab a servant so Spence takes a servant and commands the servant to spank his own son
4: okay
0: now after the son is corrected little Rosales just got corrected Then the man proceeds to discipline all of his servants in his house. And the one who spanked his son comes last. That's what we're about to read. Spence has got a son and he's got a house full of servants. In fact, it's the whole world. And he chooses one of his servants to whip his son viciously because his son is as guilty as the servants, but it doesn't make the servants innocent. And the last servant to really get his licks is the one who spanked his son. Mm. Mm. That is a metaphor for what we're about to read tonight. Did I engage you at all? Well, we're going to pray one more time, mostly because we need it. It's been a busy day. And then... The sexiest grandma that I've ever met. Miss Jennifer, she'll be reading to us tonight. So I want to pray for us and then Jen will pick up in Jeremiah 24. Father, we thank you for the chance to study your word. We love your word. Lord, we see your character in your word. Lord, we see that your word compels action from us. We are marking it down in our souls. Lord, we want to stand in your counsel, and when you share good things with us, Lord, we will carry them out. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, we pray. Amen. Pick up in uh, 24 and verse
5: 1. After Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiachin. Oh, nailed it. of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very poor figs, so bad they could not be eaten. Then the Lord asked me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the poor ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me Mm -hmm. that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God for they will return to me with all of their heart. But like the poor figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten, says the Lord, so I will deal with Zedekiah king of Judah, his officials, and the survivors from Jerusalem, whether they remain in this land or live in Egypt. I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword, an object of ridicule and cursing, whenever I banish them. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land I gave to them and their fathers.
0: Chapter 25, as well, sweetheart.
5: The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I've spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all of his servants, the prophets to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. They said, Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can say to the land the Lord gave to you and to your fathers forever and ever, Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have provoked me with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north. And my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of lamps. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. I will bring upon that land all the things I have spoken against it, and all... That are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing as they are today. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials, and all of his people, and all the foreign kings and their there. All the kings of Uz, all the kings of the Philistines, those of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and people left at Ashdod. Edom, Moab, and Amnon, all the kings of Tyre and Sidon. The kings of the coastlands across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buz, and all who were in distant places. All the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the foreign people who live in the desert. All the kings of Zimri, Elam, and Medah. And the kings of the north, near and far, one after another, all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. And after all of them, the king of Shishak will drink it too. Then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Drink, get drunk, and vomit, and fall into rise no more. Because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink it, tell them, This is what the Lord Almighty says. You must drink it. See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. And will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished. For I am calling down a sword upon all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. Now prophesy. Shout like those who tread the grapes. Shout against all who live on the earth. The tulip will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charges.
0: Come on, church. We, uh, we have cryptoanalysis for you tonight. I mean, we have ancient Hebraic codes decrypted in this text tonight. We have the grapes of wrath in this text tonight. And we have the most practical of revelations for you in this text tonight that should forever change the way that you view the message of grace. If Nehemiah could stand and read the entire book of the law, one old man reading to a bunch of people that are exiles all day, then I think that we could probably get this done tonight together. Is anybody interested in the word of God tonight? Then still your children. If anybody 35 minutes in has got to get up and run out, that's okay, but do it quietly. And let's engage together together. And get in the council room of God. You know what happens right now? Lintonius Maximus reads to us from chapter 24. And you're going to catch the first verse.
1: Right, you will probably remember that Jeremiah is arranged thematically and not chronologically. Where we're starting tonight in verse 24, we're starting at a later date. And when we get to chapter 25, we will be at an earlier date before what is happening here in 24. This verse is describing the events around the second siege of Jerusalem. We have a chart to help you remember these things. So this is the political background of the time period. We have Josiah. This is where Jeremiah begins prophesying, and it says he did so in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. In 612, we have the fall of Nineveh. The Assyrians are being weakened by Babylon at this point. In 609, we have the death of Josiah at Megiddo. He goes into battle with Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho kills him, and it is a very sad event for the people of Judah. Now, Jehoahaz took the reign, and uh, he was put there by Egyptians, and he is then deposed to Egypt, so he has a very, very short reign. Immediately after him, Jehoiakim comes into reign. This is when we see the Battle of Carchemish that we've been talking about. Now, scholars say that the Battle of Carchemish is one of the most pivotal times in history because this is where Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho Egypt was a world power at this time and you're starting to see Babylon rising up you also see the Assyrians are conquered by Babylon then that brings us to the first siege of Jerusalem you guys remember that the siege of Jerusalem wasn't a one-time event right it was three separate events this was on Nebuchadnezzar's return from defeating Assyria in this time frame we have Daniel exiled Daniel's a contemporary of Jeremiah. In 597, we have the second siege of Jerusalem, and at that point, Ezekiel is exiled. Now, Jehoiachin, whom we just read about, so this is the time frame. Jehoiachin has a three month reign as well. He's deposed very quickly into Babylon, and then Zedekiah, his uncle, is placed on the throne in his stead. This is what gets us to the final or third siege of Jerusalem. This is the very end, and this is when Jeremiah goes in to exile. Now, by the end of the chapter, we will be talking about Zedekiah and the third siege, by the end of chapter 24. So let's pick up in verse 2 and uh, get that Lenten.
6: One basket had very good things, like those that ripened early. The other basket had very poor things, so bad
2: Uh, We're at a pivotal point in this chapter here. In fact, this chapter is all about these two baskets of figs. One is very different and quite contrary to the other. See, one basket had very good figs in it, and the other basket had very poor figs. So we started asking ourselves, what does it mean to be a very good fig? What's the qualification for very good figs? I think it comes with that phrase, those that ripen early. Mm. To be a very good fig, you need to be a fig that ripens early. You guys wanna dig into that just a little bit? Yes. yes. We have a slide for you to help you see this dynamic translation comes from this particular Hebrew root word. Oh, nice. Nikir. Can you pronounce that for me,
1: brother? Bacher.
2: Bacher. Mahan means to bear first fruits. What about that? Come on. Did you guys know that right here the dynamic translation to ripen early actually has its root in first fruits? It actually means also to belong or treat as a firstborn, bearing her first child. Do you guys see how these things connect to one another? Those that ripen early, meaning you go and it's the first. Fruit that ripens in its particular season.
4: Hmm. Or
2: it's the first fruits of something, absolutely, that's synonymous. Or it's somebody who is a firstborn, the first one to become mature, or bearing a first child. Look on down here. Look at some of the related words. Bajor, firstborn, oldest offspring. Bikurim, first fruits. Bekorah, Position and right of the firstborn. bakhir, older one or firstborn. Bikura, which is the word that is in this particular passage, is an early fig. Oh my goodness, what what an amazing connection there. And the last one, bakur, I think that's right, treester, bear fruits Belong or treat as a firstborn bearing her first child. So. If it's not immediately obvious to you, like it wasn't immediately obvious to us, Hebrew readers would look at this particular passage, and they would see this word, and they would know it's intrinsically linked to both the concept of the firstborn and the feast of the firstfruits. That's detailed throughout the Torah, and especially foundationally in Leviticus chapter 23. The name of firstfruits in Hebrew is Bikurim. When they're talking about that particular feast, it's actually called Bikurim, which is that second associated word on the screen there.
0: Does anybody know why Rice University goes by the Owls? No. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Huh? Most most universities like Louisiana State University, what do you call that? Tigers and LSU Well, if your name was Sam Houston Institute of Technology, why would you not want that as an (laughs) anachronym? Because it calls to mind something that you would not want to be associated with your university. Okay. Put that in reverse. Looking at these letters in Hebrew, there is no way to get around the connection that this means first fruits, it means firstborn it means that which came out of the ground first and is therefore the best. And you don't quite get that when you read the phrase what ripens early. What's at at stake here is a fig mutant or a fig mutant, okay? We have something that grew correctly that you would want to consume and something that did not grow correctly. God called out of Egypt his firstborn, okay? Okay. That's linguistically related. Some of these figs look like what God is calling forth, and some look like something that needs to be discarded.
2: So what's the difference? What is actually happening here? Listen up to this connection, and we're going to connect the dots for you on these concepts. In Israel, there are early and late rains that fall on that nation every year to produce their various harvests. But specifically in the springtime, specifically during Passover, the best of the harvest was selected as a bikurim, as a first fruits kind of offering. This specific offering was to express thankfulness in what had already come forth from the ground, listen to this, as a result of heavenly watering and to express faith in what would be harvested in the future as a result of that same heavy rain. You see, the first fruits was an offering waved to the Lord. It was sacrificed to him, and it wasn't just to say, thank you Lord for the first fruits of the season. It was an offering that was an expression of faith about what would be produced in that season. What would continue to be produced from that land. What the nation of Israel knew that their God would do for them in their provision. So then the good figs they represent the Jews who, as a result of heavenly rain, have accepted God's workings in their land. We're not talking about just accepting blessings from the Lord. These very good figs, they accepted judgment from God. Amen. But he still called them very good figs because they accepted what the Lord had for them. Come on. They were obedient to his word. Yeah. Interestingly, the fig harvest, historically speaking, Several times immediately preceded the destruction of the temple, meaning there's a harvest of figs. And then right after that, there's some sort of judgment. These are called very good figs because they say, whatever the Lord has, I accept it with thankfulness and gratefulness. I say yes and amen to the good things and to the judgment of God all at once. Yes. Okay. Judah is going to take us to James chapter five. There's a man named Yaakov. He was the Hebrew brother of Jesus. And he really understood these principles. And he warned the body of believers in the early Messianic community
3: about these concepts. This is James 5, starting in verse 7. We'll pick up in verse 7, and just for your notes, this is out of the ESV. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Yeah. Tonight, we don't have time to cover the ways in which this is related, but if you take a look at the LXX, he's using the exact same word that is present in Jeremiah. And he goes on to say, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, wow. so that you may not be judged, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Wow! Goes on in verse 10 to say, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's calling back to earlier days in men's lives, as well as words to instruct people in his time. Saints, in this room, we need to be bickering. We need to gain that kind of faith that is early ripening, that is being rained on by heaven. James specifically says the prophets. And there are examples of God's faithfulness and his heavenly reign on flawed men, becoming good fruit as a result of that heavenly reign all throughout the word. He made men into obedient sons. This is the story of Abraham in the the Torah, a man who believed because God reigned on him. This is Jeremiah and the Naveem, which we are studying right now for that purpose during these dark days. Ruth, in the Ketuvim, and Ruth had faith and believed, and God reigned on her circumstances. Peter, in the Gospels, the one that was corrected above all else, had heavenly reign upon him, and he was good fruit. Those who are dressed in white in the book of Revelation, they had deeds that were prepared by their father that made them radiant on that day. A favorite of ours is Onesimus, in the New Testament writings. Paul said he was previously useless. Useless. But he had become useful. Yeah! Can I tell you there's hope, saints? Yes. The lesson of the good figs is that if we hope to be able to stand in the coming judgment, as James said, standing at the very door, we must be transformed by agreeing with God's word even in judgment so that we are the same quality of the men who have gone before us. This is our endeavor.
0: Somebody (laughs) should say amen to that. Amen. (laughs) Let's pick up, then, in verse 3.
3: Then the Lord
6: asked me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answer.
0: I love when God <laughs> asks Jeremiah questions about what, yeah. what he sees. I would think it was a trick question. <laughs> you know, right. What do you see? An <laughs> olive branch? Very good. You know? <laughs> okay, he sees figs.
6: The good ones are very good, but the poor ones are so bad, they cannot be eaten.
0: Look. If we had unlimited time, we would take you to Matthew 25 and show you the difference between sheep and goats because it's the same as the difference between the good figs and the bad figs, but we don't have time. So we're going to read verse 4.
6: Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the
0: Babylonians. Who sent them into Babylon? The Lord. And it's an act of judgment, but God has promised to watch over them for good. He's promised to care for them. Look, this has profound implications for John Nelson Darby's uh, theory or Tim LaHaye or any of those things that should be left behind. Because (laughs) the exiles are those who agreed with the judgments of God in their own generation. And they stood with his purposes, even though it meant extreme difficulties for them. They don't get raptured away to Egypt. They don't get the, the only people that do not survive this event are the ones that don't see God's hand in it. Do you think that that's a, a pertinent word for us? Yes. They were sinners. I want to be clear about that. But they were regarded as good, even very good. They were credited with righteousness because they agreed with God and they were obedient to him. See, when we face difficulties and we want to run from them or blame God, we're not agreeing with him. If you have an entire branch of theology dedicated to the idea that God would never do this, it's almost as if you've cut half of your Bible out. We're going to pick up in verse 6, but I think you're starting to get the tenor of the kind of things we're going to discuss tonight.
6: Yeah, Come on. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. Mm. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all their heart. Wow,
1: now, that's a good word, isn't it?
6: Yeah. yeah.
1: You should take out your highlighters and your pens right now and start highlighting these verses because the Lord's going to show you something good. You ready?
0: Oh, Anybody love Israel in this house? Yeah.
1: I want to show you a slide. And this has seven principles that God is saying for exiles. Say exiles. Exiles. These are not perfect men. These are not men who had it all together. These were men who were watered by heavenly rains And then accepted whatever else God would give them, whether it was good or it seemed bad. But to be honest with you, church, is everything from the Lord good?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
1: He says about these exiles, my eyes will watch over them. Every time Justin says will, you repeat it. I will will bring them. I will build them. I will will plant them. I will will give them a heart to know me. They will will be my people. I will will be their God, for they will will return to me. Justin, it's
0: really good that this is as ambiguous as it is. Like, (laughs) it's very hard to know whether or not God will do this for them, huh? No, not at all. Seven times he said it, just like he made seven promises when they left Egypt. God's pretty emphatic on this point. I I have a hard time understanding how whole branches
1: of theology can't see what is plainly written on that screen. And he says this throughout the scriptures many times for Israel. But you know what we've been learning in this church? That if you just roll with God, if you commit your way to him, accept whatever, whatever he gives you in this life, He will lead you. He will give you the ability to produce more abilities. This is something he's promised and something you don't have to make happen. He will do it for his people. So let's pick up in verse 8, and we're going to continue down to verse 10. Yeah, we'll be reading about the fig mutants now.
6: (laughs) (laughs) But like the poor figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten, Uh says the Lord, so I will deal with Zedekiah, king of Judah,
0: his officials, and the survivors, whether they remain in this land
4: or live in Egypt, I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms
6: of the earth, Ooh. a reproach and a byword, an object of ridicule and cursing wherever I banish them. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land I gave to them and their fathers. Uh oh. We figured out who the
2: bad figs are in this chapter, guys <laughs> Zedekiah, his officials, and the survivors from Jerusalem. The one that chose to be stubborn, hard-hearted, and to disobey a direct command from God. This is, sh- should be connecting in your mind back to Jeremiah chapter 19. And the jar of pottery that was smashed, that was not able to be repaired, it was dashed to pieces, should make, be making that connection to Zedekiah and that particular generation that remained there in Jerusalem. Now at this point, at the end of chapter 24, we've reached the time of Zedekiah and this climactic third siege. Do we have that slide one more time? All right. So at the end of the chapter, we are now talking about the final or third siege of Jerusalem under Zedekiah and also the same time where Jeremiah goes into exile. So that should be refreshed in your mind now. Because we're about to make a transition as we go to chapter 25. Somebody say, I'm making a transition. I'm making a transition. Come on. As we transition into chapter 25, the thematic presentation is going to reflect back in time to Jehoiakim son of Josiah and the beginnings of Nebuchadnezzar's rule and reign with the battle of Carchemish. The purpose of this anachronism, sorry about that. is to remind the people of the reason that this judgment is coming upon them. We're going to read through 25, and it's going to highlight why they're being judged, why they're going through judgment, why this is happening. We're going to rewind a little bit and see the
3: basis for that. Look, as we do that, apologize. Go ahead, brother. I want you to imagine for a minute. You're sitting with a grandfather. He's telling you about an event that has happened, and then he's like, Well, you know, that's not how it started. Let me tell you how all of this began. Mm -hmm. You just heard about the climactic, vicious part of this. But he's saying, hey, we've been pointing to this for quite some time. Mm -hmm. A second note I want you to derive is we just covered an entire chapter in 36 minutes, which is a first for us.
4: Amen.
3: To keep this
0: in perspective. We weren't just picking on Spencer earlier when we had him stand up and then pick Chris as a servant to spank his own son. What's actually about to happen is we're about to be told why that spanking had to take place. Does that make sense? And what the outcome of the servant who performed the spanking will be. See, God's pretty thorough in this, and he wants you to understand why he has spanked Issued this judgment against his own people.
3: Well, then, if you get verses one through three, we'll just fill in a little more background about Jeremiah.
6: The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah, the prophet, said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem for twenty-three years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah. To this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have
3: not listened. Man, you think ministry is hard? Or pastoring your home is difficult some days? (laughs) She won't listen! (laughs) We've drawn up the parallels over and over again between Jeremiah and Jesus. But let's just suffice it to say the man is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. He's 23 years into ministry which is roughly, but not quite, the halfway mark. And you know what just happened? Nebuchadnezzar just came to power, who is the guy for 23 years he's been prophesying, one day will bring judgment. So not only has he been prophesying death and destruction, but for 23 years there has been no visible sign of the empire who might bring it about. Wow. And just now we're at a place where something looks like it's looming out in the north. To be able to consistently and faithfully deliver the word of the Lord with little to no visible signs of progress or fruit from it is something that should be commended and we must learn from.
1: Look,
3: perhaps every man in this room should consider the patient endurance that is required of the actually called. The truly called, those who are running with the right gospel message and have yes. been in the council of God. Yes, Pastor, I've been disciple for three whole years. I'm
0: ready. Are you ready to do what Jeremiah did? No. Do Could you maybe benefit from I don't know three more weeks? <laughs> maybe. Okay. Twenty-three years is a very long time to stand in this position, don't you think? Yeah. And by the way his first big visible signs is happening, it lands him on trial for treason. We'll get to that here in the future. It's not as if his life gets easier from this point. He now knows for sure. He always knew for sure he had the title deed, but now other people can begin to see he's right, but they don't like it. Okay, let's pick up in verse 4. (laughs) Said, <laughs> I'm so proud of our pastors in this house. They did not jump up and down and yell, amen. <laughs>
6: they said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me with, to anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you.
0: Wow. This begs a question. What prophets are are being referred to? Because it looks very often like in Jeremiah's day, they're all false prophets. Hmm. And these happen to be very real prophets, not false ones. How do we know that? Because these prophets are saying, turn now from your wicked ways. Each of you must. In other words, it's like they've been through a ministry training class. They know how to call people to account. That's not at all what's happening at that circus on 59. I mean, they're not telling the whole group, you're all champions, man. These are real prophets. So let me ask, who are they? I'm glad that you wanted to know. Can we pick that slide? These are so easy to put together, by the way. I love to have to do technological things like this. To start with, Hosea in 785 to 725 is prophesying to the nation. He's laying much of the groundwork that would help prepare the way for Jeremiah. But by the time we get to 630 or so B.C., Zephaniah's on the scene, and he's a contemporary of Jeremiah. Then there's this prophetess named Huldah. Yeah, look, why why is it only a guy said, oh, yeah should have been you girls are happy about that? There are all kind of men alive. Jeremiah's alive and holds day, but the king actually sends envoys to Hulda, not not Jeremiah. These are prophets contemporary, which Habakkuk is living in the time of Jeremiah. Have you ever read Habakkuk? Yeah. Then, of course, late in Jeremiah's life, Daniel is on the scene prophesying. Obadiah is on the scene prophesying. Ezekiel is on the scene, prophesying. Look, there are some things that are practical you should take from this. It's not just Jeremiah that faithfully prophesied to these generations. Come on, there's no such thing as a long lone ranger minister. God always has others. Yeah, Ask a man named Elijah about the seven thousand he didn't know about. <laughs> Ezra, writing as the chronicler, Ezra probably put together the books of First and Second Chronicles. He spoke about why so many prophets were sent and why the judgment was so severe. Who's going to read for us tonight? I'm so glad, Bonham, you were looking forward to it. Get 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 15 and 16 and read it like the Bonhammer that you are. Yeah. One more time, uh, Bonham. Go ahead and stand up and this time read it like Dietrich Bonhammer or Hoffer, if you propose. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his
4: people and
1: his place. Oh, this is the reason why God sent his prophets. This chapter is the summary of everything that happened and the reason why everything is going on. And he's saying he sent his prophets because God had pity Pity. on his people and on his dwelling place. The truth that is here is incredible. The reason why prophets come and speak a message, turn now each of you, is because God has pity on you. So what does it look like if you reject the message? You're rejecting God's pity and nothing else remains for you. This should also adjust your thoughts about
0: corrections in your life. Yeah. Corrections in your life are not to punish you. Yeah. Those corrections in your life are an act of God's pity, His mercy
1: on you as His dwelling place. Oh. He's trying to perfect you, church. Yeah. And thank God we have prophets in this house. And thank God God has pity on us to teach us to say things to each other that causes us to grow. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Get verse 16. oh Uh-oh. They mocked God's messengers, like maybe not in front of their face, but behind the scenes thinking about the way they said it and how they didn't like it. I don't know. Keep going. But they only did it Sunday after they left
0: church while they were eating food. I mean, it's not that big a deal.
1: No, but they forgave them in their hearts.
0: Oh, yeah. And they just want people to know how to pray. (laughs) Until what,
1: Bonham? Do you see that God had pity and then over and over time and again, his wrath was aroused? He didn't send his prophets in wrath. He sent his prophets in pity, but the rejection caused his anger to arouse. Look, when men persist in their sin, when they persist in their sin, God's purposes will not be stopped. Say that God's purposes will not not be stopped. stopped. But those men will be removed from his purposes. His wrath will be aroused and he will not put up with them, but he'll raise up someone else to fulfill that role. This is the separation of the good and bad figs that you saw in the last chapter. This is God's sifting of the people through the word of his prophets. The nation, like Judah said earlier, is a lump of clay and they can be marred and remolded. Paul said, out of the same lump of clay, he can make noble vessels. But the leader of Jeremiah's generation were a jar that would be broken to pieces like
0: pottery. Y'all get the difference between the national destiny and the generational outcome? As a nation, anytime they're marred, then God will simply reform them. As a generation, if you will not accept his reforming, if the fire of his word it actually hardens you rather than reforms you, then he breaks you to pieces like pottery. And he's able to raise up children from stones, but it's always the yeah. same lump of clay. Amen.
6: And
1: yeah. hey, let's pick up in verse 7.
6: But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have provoked me with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourself. Goodness
2: <laughs> Gracious. You have provoked me. Wow. Did you guys notice what the text says there? You brought harm to yourselves. Yeah. You did this to yourself. This this wasn't some mystical, unforeseeable event that all of a sudden came upon the people. This was something that they knew that they were doing that eventually judgment reached its point.
3: Oh, I don't know how I got here, Nick.
4: That, what happened?
2: That is just... Uncorrect. You know, heaven was looking down, and as a result of this flagrant disobedience to God's word, as heaven looked down and as they had heaven's perspective, heavens, the heavens knew. They did this to themselves. These people acted on their own accord in direct disobedience to God's word. But let me tell you something. You know, there's, there's some sort of promise that we are very fond of in this house, something to come back. What you're what you're hearing from verse seven here, it's the right to be something from John one twelve. Come on. oh, Bonham, come on. what what do you have the right to be, Bonham? A son. You yeah. have the right to become a son of God, and like your father, like your Creator, you have the right to put your hands on things and to replicate His creative power on the earth. You have the right to bring that as His son. Come on, yeah. these people or purposefully creating something that was not sonship. They were outside of that sonship of their father. But we have the right to operate within his sonship. And the creation of our hands will be empowered by our father because it is our right to have it.
0: Do you find it humorous that in our time when most seem to deny the existence of God or remake him into what they would like him to be, that the only time you ever hear the words act of God, it's not an act of God when a life is saved. It's not an act of God when somebody has a child. All that's mother nature. But if something bad happens, oh, who could know it? It was like an act of God. I want you to know that acts of God are actually foretold in advance. They're confirmed in his word. They're confirmed through the counsel and the canon. And the thing is, They are very knowable. God has been warning them since the times of Hosea about this. It's not as if it's unpredictable. The reason that it feels that way is as sin hardens the human heart, you stop being able to determine what is and is not God, Mm -hmm. and you become God to yourself, and you decide that everything that's happening is totally unrelated to anything that I've done. It's a mystical event, and that we'll call an act of God. In an almost facetious way. If instead, as children, we looked at him and said, Daddy, anything that comes from your hands is good for me. Treat me as you would. Then, all of a sudden, these things become corrective. you be like, what what caused this? Okay, I'm never doing that again. But when you disconnect the consequence from what caused the consequence, then you can't make those adjustments. Mm. And it turns out that we have, well, lots of generations that don't like to accept consequence of any kind. Got no problem with stimulus checks, but got big problems with consequence. (laughs) What's verse 8?
6: Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this. Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north. And my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, Hmm. king of Babylon, declares the Lord. Shut it down.
3: bound up in these two singular verses. And we're going to get into a subject that's one of my favorites this evening. Yeah. But first I want to remind you of something we told you in the very beginning. What we're encountering this evening is a little bit like a man with a son and many servants. The man is displeased with his son because his son is sinning and he's been forewarning him, forewarning him, forewarning, letting his knowledge go out into all the creation. And he's displeased with the servants, because they're also disobedient. So the man takes one of the servants, and he commands the servant to discipline his son. After the son has corrected the man, the father proceeds to discipline all of the servants in the house, but he saves one very specific one for last, the one that was the instrument of spanking, the one who dealt out the discipline to his son. Now, notice that the biblical text actually refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. God speaks possessively of him and says he is my servant because he is being used like a paddle in the hand of a good father. And he's going to deal out a blow that will definitely course correct behavior. Wow. (laughs)
0: No, it's it's like a giant charcuterie board that suddenly became (laughs) a
3: Like with Nick (laughs) Hats. Some might think it strange that an idol-worshiping ruler or another one named Cyrus, who's referred to as the Lord's anointed, are spoken of in these kind of terms. My servant, my anointed. But it really is the ultimate statement of God's supreme sovereignty that he can even use... Lost pagan rulers for his purposes. It'd be
0: like if Anthony and I, and I, Anthony and I were fighting, and Anthony said, I am so superior to you, I'm going to hit you with his hand. <laughs> and then later came and attacked him for striking me. I mean, it, it really
3: is kind of, uh, God is masterful in this. If God is able to deal out blows, utilizing an enemy against his son, you hear me, Ben? How much more should he be able to use his sons who are supposed to have a willing, open heart, ready yeah. to serve him? Moral. Look, to give you an idea of how these pagans are spoken of and utilized in the Bible, I have some references that we would like to go through together quickly. Paulie, <laughs> Jeremiah 27, 6-7. Nick Rosales, Jeremiah 43, 10-13. JJ, I'm going to give you Daniel 4, 1-3. Then uh, somebody next to J.J. Elder John. You can't say no to an elder. Get Daniel 4, 34 through 37. Let's go ahead and pick up in Jeremiah 27 when ready.
6: Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar,
0: king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. Mm. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations... I want you to think through this for a second. If the God of Israel can correctly predict, predict the future of three generations of a pagan ruler, how much more oh, yeah. can we trust him when he says all Israel will be saved? Oh, yeah. Look, let's move to Jeremiah 43.10. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty,
4: the God of Israel, said. I will
2: set for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and I will set... Over these stones, I have buried them. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those
0: destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their
2: temples and take their gods captive. As the shepherd picks his garment clean of lice, so he
4: will pick Egypt clean and
0: depart. Look, uh, when you're looking at this. If the God of Israel can correctly predict Nebuchadnezzar being used as a servant to crush Egypt and Egypt's gods, how much more yeah, yeah. can we trust him when he says all Israel will be saved? Right. He could crush Israel's gods with Moses and he could crush Israel's, uh, not Israel, Egypt's gods with Nebuchadnezzar. Wow. That is an amazing statement about the God that we serve, don't you think? I want you to catch in these next passages, though, because it's beautiful. What happens with Nebuchadnezzar? I'm telling you he is a goat-worshipping pagan maniac. But that's not how he ends his life. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Look, when you were looking at this, this is the beginning of a letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote. I want you to catch that because it's included in the book of Daniel, which means Nebuchadnezzar contributes almost a whole chapter to the book of Daniel. He didn't just go defeat uh, Egypt's gods. He didn't just spank God's people. He also contributes to their book. But at this point, what he's actually doing is giving his own testimony. And he goes on to, be, to describe being struck with madness. He actually gets down on all fours and eats. Uh, it looks like some of the people I've seen at buffets in Missouri City. And he, he attributes it to his own pride. Now, near the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he concludes with these words. And as you read them, Justin will talk to you about them.
2: Now, that's
1: pretty amazing to read, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it give you a little bit of hope whenever you're praying for leaders of nations? Yeah. Yeah. If God can do this with a pagan, wicked king, he can do so much more. Yeah. You see, if this formerly pagan Gentile king can see the wisdom of God in judgments that fell on himself personally, he's, he's seeing the judgments that fell on him personally, And out of all people, this wicked king shouldn't have the ability to see himself rightly. But God gives him the wisdom to see himself rightly and to see his judgments rightly. Now, if God can do that for a pagan, Gentile, complete idol worshiper, how much more should the sons of God agree with the judgments of God? Come on, church. How much more? How much more? Now, you've got to imagine being Israel, seeing their captives in this land. And they're seeing what God is doing to the king where they are captives at. What would that do as a son of God looking at what, is God, what God is doing in that situation? It is absolutely astounding. You know, it kind of reminds me, maybe a little bit, that the stumbling of Israel going into Babylon might have just brought riches to the Gentiles wherever they were. I think I read about that in Romans 11, 11. Oh. I want to hint at another thing. If the rejection of a generation of Israel brought this kind of life to Nebuchadnezzar, what might their acceptance have brought to the whole Babylonian nation?
2: I think I read about that one in
0: Romans eleven, 15. has got to be talking about something else, Norwegians or something, right? Yeah. Couldn't be talking about his own history.
2: No, no, no.
1: Look, lastly, a general. <laughs> Look, here's a good truth in the Bible. When the Jews, when their rejection means riches for the world, it brings riches for the world. That's why you're here, right? Yes. Yeah. That doesn't happen with the Gentiles. If the Gentiles are rejected, that doesn't bring riches for anybody. How important do you think God's people Israel really are?
4: Come on. Come on. Come on. Good.
1: Norwegians. Lastly, a generation of Israel could not avert the national destiny of Israel. They couldn't avert going into Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar's revival could not avert the national destiny of Babylon neither. God has a purpose for these nations. We
0: want you to catch this on both ends. A generation of Israel cannot avert the ultimate salvation of Israel. They can't stop it. But also, neither can the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar, his revival, it cannot avert the destiny of Babylon. Israel is destined to be saved, and Babylon is destined to be damned. Individuals get choices. Nations have predetermined
1: destinies in the Word. So I'm going to read Isaiah 44:28 28, and... Nick's going to comment on this, but listen to what this says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Wow. Is Cyrus speaking God's will when he says,
2: let Jerusalem be rebuilt. Is that God's will during the time period? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's God's will. What about what he's saying of the temple, at this point, let its foundations be laid. Is that God's will? Yes. Well, we want to make a point here. Because Nebuchadnezzar certainly had an experience with God Most High. And it looks like he was transformed on an individual level. And yet, what happened to Babylon? They were destined for destruction. Well, look at Cyrus. Cyrus is coming, the nation that he is ahead of is coming into power. He is saying things that are in line with the will of God. And yet there's also no evidence in the word that Cyrus had a salvation experience or was walking in salvation at this time.
0: It actually looks quite to the contrary when it comes down to it.
2: Absolutely. It looks like he is he is on a personal level, not walking in salvation. And yet he's called God's shepherd because the nation that he is over is under the control of of God's destiny that he has for that nation. You see, Cyrus was just a tool in the hand of the master. Isaiah 45 and verse 1 furthers that point. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. Wow! Call Cyrus his anointed.
0: Messiah. Messiah!
2: Whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Cyrus is actually called the Lord's Mashiach, the Lord's anointed, but there is no evidence that he got saved or was walking in salvation at all. You see, Cyrus was just a tool in the hand of the master. We know that because nations have destinies, but people have choices.
0: Are y'all ready to go further in the text tonight? Yes. Okay, because... We're going to warn you. What's coming is, well, it's not your grandmother's Bible study, okay? Some of it is a bit shocking. Would you rather us dole it down for you and make no. sure that it fits in with the contemporary narrative? No. <laughs> okay, let's pick up in verse 10. <laughs> I, will,
6: I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of
3: <laughs> now, I know all of you knew immediately 70 was just an arbitrary number, right? <laughs> yeah, sevens always are in the Bible. Just in case it's not, I'm going to start to lay some groundwork for you. Chris Riazora, get Leviticus 23, 3. Avambola, if you can get Leviticus 25, 2 through 4. Then uh, Rob Barnett, get Leviticus 26, 32 through 35. And then I got one more for a the Lion King back there. Yeah. We're going to go back to 2 Chronicles 36, but get 20 through 21. Go ahead and pick up in Leviticus 23.3 for me, Chris. There are six days when
2: you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, Mm. a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord.
3: Sabbath! And that's a topic in the United States we rarely discuss unless you walked across the parking lot to the Seventh-day (laughs) Adventist. God created Sabbath for man. We don't have to tread back through Genesis to understand that concept. But there's a very specific people that he gave such a promise to. You know, that promise didn't just exist for the people. Who has Leviticus 25, 2-4? Speak
1: to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath
3: to the Lord. Oh, pause for just a second, Ben. Did you just did you just read and say that the land must observe a Sabbath? Yes. The land. How is it the land is going to observe a Sabbath? Mm-hmm. It must be that somebody who's responsible for caretaking of it has an obligation. Yeah. Keep reading. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath's rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Like I even a little sheepish just to say that this has almost never been observed in Israel's history. Yes. Although God <laughs> prescribed it from the very <laughs> beginning, it's including true. today. Right? God prescribed that the people and the place both had a prescribed Sabbath that was supposed to be kept. Acts 2, students, are you tracking with me? Yes. Let's go ahead and get Leviticus 26, 32 through 35. Oh, it's about to get good.
2: I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Wow. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Mm-hmm. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies
3: This is going to become abundantly clear. (laughs) Somebody say abundant. Abundant. There are many atrocious things that led up to the Babylonian captivity, but the scripture presents a primary reason, and it's not the one most people would have guessed. (laughs) As we're writing, in chronicling the events of the kings, summarizes everything that has happened with a very specific phrase that we're about to read that lets you know why these events are coming about. Go ahead and get that, Asabh. Mm. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. All right, saints, we're about to put this together for you. But I want you to remember, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. Yeah. Okay. This is not just Hebrew metaphor. God cares about his land, about his people, and his plan. Now, there's a very specific reason that there are 70 years to be completed. We're going to
0: go through the math here in just a second, because the math is pretty fantastic. But I just got to tell you, in my house growing up, hearing the phrase dirt nap did not mean the land was getting its rest. (laughs) It was a a mortal threat that you were about to be put in a grave. (laughs) It's what a dirt nap was to us. The Bible speaks about the land of Israel as a living thing. The Bible actually speaks about the entire earth as a living thing. But he says, that land, it's mine. He watches over it. He cares for it. He cares for the people. He cares for the land. And he cares for his plan and watches over it. Do you want to see how this math works out? Yes. We have a slide for you. So the Sabbath is every seventh year. The time of captivity is is stated multiple times as 70 years. That means one year for every Sabbath year that was missed. That math means that the land had not been given proper Sabbaths for 490 years, which is the time period of the kings. In other words, you can take the 70 years of captivity and multiply it by 7 and know how long God is holding them accountable for. Adonai had forgiven them, hear it, 70 times 7, and then... The bill came due. <laughs> he brought judgment because grace is not a license for immorality. Amen. Now, this yields an interesting twist on several common Christian misconceptions. This is what I meant about your grandmother's Bible study. Are you ready for it? Yes. Do we have the ability to display the NASB? Yes, sir. Oh, let's put Matthew 18, 21 through 22 on the screen. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? (laughs) Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You've been told by every commentary that you can ever find that there's unlimited grace available to all. This is simply not true for Jeremiah's generation. And I can't imagine that Jesus would say this in this way to Peter if he was not referencing their own history. Forgive. Show mercy. Those things are absolutely paramount in the Scripture up until the point that God decrees that it has reached its limit. And God is the one who makes that declaration. I want you to hear the Apostle Paul for a minute. Okay, this is important. Do you think Paul would say something that's ungodly and recorded in the inspired word? No. We'll engage with this for a minute. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 16. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come on them at last. That doesn't sound like Grandma's Bible study. No. Hey, there's a, there's a limit to how high you can stack that stuff. <laughs> I mean sin. 1 Timothy 1.16 is one of the most misunderstood verses that I can think of in our time. And it's because of a very bad translation. I love the NIV, but this is a terrible translation. 1 Timothy 1.16 But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Would you be surprised to find out that the word unlimited is not in any manuscript anywhere? It can't be inferred in any way from the manuscript. The original word is Greek 3956, and it means whole, as in perfect, any, all, or very. But it does not mean unlimited ever. In fact, there is no major translation that I'm aware of that chooses the phrase unlimited. It had to be that the translators wanted it to be unlimited patience. But I want to tell you for sure. There is a 70 times 7 limit in God's mind to how long he will be patient with the people that disregard his word. I think that's important that we know. The idea that God has unlimited patience is an invention of modern Christianity. His patience demonstrably have limits. And the chapter that we're in tonight, it's speaking about where those limits are. For every nation on the planet, we're about to get into that. There is a place where sin has reached its judgment. That in and of itself is a limit to patience. Do you have to forgive? Of course you do. That does not mean that God's judgment is not coming. And when God says, separate, my judgment is on that, When it reaches 70 times 7 in God's calculation, because how could you calculate that, then it has reached its fullness. God said this to Abraham too. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. But on the day that it did, he said, Hey, Joshua, go in and kill them all. Okay? It's important that you adjust your theology to what the Bible says and not what you would like it to say. Now, I know Grandma will be disappointed, but Jesus will be happy. Let's pick up in verse 12.
6: But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, Mm. the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. I will bring upon that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations repay them according to their deeds and the work of
1: their hands. Do you see here that Jeremiah is speaking about God's judgment against his nation? No, Of course not. He says against all the nations. So we've moved from judgment on Israel. Now we're talking about judgment of the nations. And this is exactly where we started tonight in our intro. We said to you, what we are going to encounter tonight is a little bit Like a man with his son and many servants, this man is displeased that his son and his servants are disobedient. They're all disobedient. So the man takes one of the servants and commands the servant to spank his son. Can you imagine how crazy that would be to see a father to allow a slave to beat his son? Man, I'm sure the slave wanted to beat the son because he's been jealous the whole time. And the father lets it happen. But then, after the son is corrected, the man then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in order, and he saves the one who spanked his son for last.
0: Where does the judgment of God begin? The house of God. And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly? Yeah. God can take someone who is ungodly and use them to discipline his own son, but that does not at all mean that he holds the ungodly unaccountable. He's just using a tool in his hand. We have a scripture string for you on this that I think will, well, I hope it will bless you. Are you all awake? Yes. Who
1: wants to read? Hayes, you get Obadiah 15 through 16. Rob, you get Psalm 110. 5 through 6, Steve Thomas Ezekiel 30 verse 3 through 4. Nick Rosales Micah 5:15 Nolan 2 Corinthians 5:10. Obadiah 15 and 16. Looking for Obadiah. Yeah. Loud and proud.
2: The Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Ooh. Just as you drank on my holy pills, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. You know, a lot of times in Obadiah, we stop in verse 15 and we don't read through. We're talking about the nations of the world in Obadiah 15 and 16. 15 is clear. As you have done, it will be done to you. So if you're going to spank the son. You are going to get your you know what spanked as well. Verse 16. Think about this. Just as you drink on my holy hill, you nations. All the nations are going to drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. See, there's going to be another time. Where the nations come,
0: <laughs> you you thought you got wasted at some point in history. He's saying they're going to be wasted on the cup of His wrath.
2: Ooh, more to that, more on that to come. The nations are going to stream and be used as tools in the hand of God. But guess what? What they are doing to God's nation will come back on their own heads. Who had Psalm one ten five through six is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will
3: judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Man, I love when the scripture is so plain, even in English among a Gentile crowd, that very little commentary is needed. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Amen. Nobody's going to escape, okay. not even Sleepy Joe, when he returns. Who so is Ezekiel 30, 3-4? For the
4: day
2: is near. The day of the Lord is near. The day of clouds. The time of doom for the nations. The sword will come against Egypt. Mm-hmm. The anguish will come upon bush. When the slain falls in Egypt, her wealth will be carried away and her foundations torn down.
0: Even it hurts me to read this in, in your presence. The day of the Lord is going to be. A day of gloom and wrath for the nations. Judgment began in the house of God. This is their day of gloom and wrath so that they are corrected. They are being corrected now. Israel is being corrected throughout history. The rest of the nations go their own way and get corrected at the end of history. And you know it because there is a pile of dead bodies everywhere and the Lord slayed them. Let's grab Micah
1: 5.15. anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Which nation is excluded in that, church? Can you think of what a terrible day, day that will be when Nazi Germany stands before the Lord? Can you think of what a terrible day that will be when North Korea stands before the Lord? It is going to be a dreaded and awful day when all of the nations stand before him. But you want to know what else is true? It's true of every nation, but it's also true of every individual human being. Whether they are in Christ or not, every person will be judged just as well because we as individuals make up those nations. God is going to have a judgment where every single person in this room, every single person in Houston, every person in the United States, the world will have their stand before the judgment seat of christ
0: does that seem wrong to anybody y'all got kind of kind of quiet good because nick's gonna nick's gonna help you with it it's (laughs) it's a really obscure passage that's hard to find Mm -hmm. in the book of second corinthians
2: yeah it's like somewhere in the i don't know the forgotten book in the older no it's actually in corinthians in the (laughs) New testament it's second corinthians chapter five and verse ten say that if you're a servant of God, you're not unaccountable for your actions. As a servant of God, you are more accountable for your actions than a pagan. Yeah. If God holds pagans accountable for their own deeds,
6: then
4: how much more?
6: Oh, will he hold
2: his own sons accountable for deeds done in his name? Church, forgiven means that you are saved from eternal wrath. And man, am I thankful yes. that I am forgiven in God's yes. house. Yes. This does not mean that you're saved from every consequence of disobedience. In fact, we need those consequences from yes. disobedience so that we learn from them. Amen. And guess what? Our response is, just and true are your judgments, oh God. Isn't he so good that he judges us now yes. so that we don't have to be judged later? Yes, yes he is a good God. Let's continue in verse 15, and we're going to read through
6: 16. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand.
3: not going to discuss what seems to be an Ezekiel-like vision, where he's visiting every nation. (laughs) We are not going to discuss a sword that's going all through the earth and reminds you of a writer in Revelation. What we're going to center in on is a cup filled with the wine of God's wrath. Now, fortunately, I have a slide for you first. So you see, 14 times it's used as God's cup of wrath. That individuals or nations are drinking and it's not voluntary. But praise God, there are seven times that it's used in a positive sense of God's blessing and a choice to participate in drinking it. Now, we have a few scriptures on the subject that are primarily from Revelation that we would like to read to you. I'm going to list what the scripture is. You can write it in your notes, but just listen. Revelation 14, 8 through 12. A second angel followed and said, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Man, I wonder what time frame this is speaking of. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength might even say cast strength, nothing watered down, into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. You know those guys playing harps? No. In the presence of his holy angels wow. and of the Lamb. Come on. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name.
0: I want to read you Revelation 16, 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. See, what happened in Jeremiah's day never fulfills these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Also, what happened in the first century? did not fulfill these kind of things. Right. There is a
1: cup yet to be drunk. Revelation 18, 6-8 through eight says, Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief. See, this is to... This is projected at what God is going to do to Babylon the great in the future for what she has done to the world. Now check out Isaiah 51, 21 through 23. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one,
2: made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. Come on. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Come on. He took it out of the hand of his people, but watch what happens to the cup. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors. Come on. Who said to you, Fall prostrate that we may walk over you. Wow. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked over. The Lord will take that cup of wrath. Out of the hands of his people. And he will put it in the hands of those that torment his people. And they will be drunk on the wrath of God Almighty. Come on. Let's continue in 17. And we are going to read all the way through 26. And get ready for some nations.
3: So, saints, this is about to be an extraordinary chunk that we're going to cover. But I want you to remember, everything that you just read, everything you just saw on that slide... Isaiah prophesied before the Assyrian captivity, long before Babylon had even risen to power. There would be a day that Israel no longer drank of that cup of wrath. Come on. In fact, it would be turned on her tormentors. Our God is the one who calls the shots, centuries in advance, yeah. and causes yeah. it to come to pass, and come he on. will do this through Israel. Come on. Pick up in 17.
0: You're going to want to rouse yourselves because I promised you yeah. that there would be crypto analysis, <laughs> and you're about to find it.
4: Amen.
6: So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing as they are today. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials, and all his
5: and all the foreign people there, all the kings of us, all
0: the kings of the Philistines, those of Ashkelon, Gaza, mm. Necron,
6: and the people left at Ashkelon.
0: Gaza Strip, West Bank, it's coming, baby. Yeah.
6: Edom, Moab, Jordan, and all Yeah. All the kings of Tyre and Sidon. Lebanon. Lebanon. The kings of the coastlands across the sea. The Dan, Timo, Buzz. Don't and know. All who
1: are in
0: Saudi East Arabia. Lands, all the kings of Arabia. And all the kings of the foreign people who live in the desert. All the kings of Zimri,
4: Elam, and Media. Iran. Iran. Iraq. Turkey. And all the kings of the north, near and far, one
6: after the other. All the kingdoms on the face of the earth. And after all of them, the king of Shishak will drink it too.
0: You remember in our example that we keep sharing, and I won't beat that dead horse again. That the servant who spanked the son got spanked last. That's because the last of the kings to be spanked is a guy named Shishak. And commentators have a hard time with that because there's no recorded king in history named Shishak. That's because Babylon is at the door of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar is in the third siege. And there is a cryptogram in this verse. And it, it was discovered by, not discovered, it was noticed by people like Calvin. It's been noticed by a lot of Bible commentators through the years. It's kind of a fun one. We're going to put it on the screen for you. If you've never heard of Hebrew at and you Google it, you're going to find some ridiculous crap about it being Kabbalistic. <laughs> it's, true. it's not Kabbalistic. <laughs> okay. It actually exists within the book of Jeremiah three times. Isaiah at least once. It's a well-known method of writing when you do not want your enemy to know what you're saying, but you want the people to know what you're saying. It actually anticipates hostile jamming and has a way to look as if it's an innocuous message when in fact it's very detailed and specific. What you see from right to left is the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's why the numbers there are 1 through 11. Then you see from left to right under it, starting with the Lamed, 12, and going all the way to number 22, which is the Tav. When you set the 22 letters of the alphabet in this format over each other, it forms a cipher. The shin, number, uh, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the shin, which you see twice in the word shishak, it becomes a bet, twice. The koth in shishak, number 11, becomes the lamed, number 12. In other words, shishak is Babel written in a cryptograph. And it's right there in the, and, and you can do this with several passages where commentators don't know who is being spoken about. It's almost as if they would do well to get into the Hebrew culture and see how they write and what they do. Kind of like somebody trying to translate the phrase green thumb, except that's an idiom. This is a form of expressing a very, very sensitive message to make sure that the enemy doesn't understand what you're saying. That's been done in times of war. Forever. Does anybody know what an enigma machine is? No, it's an enigma. Hey. (laughs) Let's read Revelation 14, verse 7 and 8. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water a second angel followed and said, you ready for it? Fallen! Fallen is Babylon. In case you missed it, that's Shishak, the great which has made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. All the way back in Jeremiah, God's saying, yeah, I see what you're doing and I'm going to use you and then I'm going to make you drink the kind of thing that you make the other nations drink. Yeah, I would say God calls his shots centuries in advance. And clearly, John knew how to read the book of Jeremiah.
1: Let's read Revelation 17. So Revelation 17, verse 17. I'm going to read all the way through 18.5, but pick up with this. For God has put it into their minds to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule Until God's words are fulfilled. Do you see how this is God's word doing that? Interesting, huh? Verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. Man, that's crazy, right? This angel had not only authority, but great authority. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adulteries with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. But then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. Yeah! So that you will not share in her sins. Amen! So that you will not receive any of her plagues. Yes, Lord! For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Almost like they reached a limit. Come on. Now, check this out. When God gives his word from Jeremiah, he gives it to the people of that day, he sends an encrypted message. He does not want Babylon or Satan or whoever's controlling everything to see what's going to happen. But at this time, John doesn't write a cryptid message. He writes it plain and clear so that the people of God can know what's coming because Jesus Christ has come and empowered his saints to do what this says. Do you mean to tell me that the word
0: apocalypsos, which is the book of Revelation, means the unveiling and the understanding. Oh, my goodness.
2: Church, have you remember the the long passage that we're talking about that we just read with all the nations listed? Do you remember while you're reading the word and many times throughout the word from beginning to end when talking about Shishak, when talking about Babylon and the final days? You have... uh, A phrase that talks about all of the nations surrounding God's people. Have you guys heard that? Have you read it? All the nations surround Jerusalem. All the nations come and surround Israel. That's not just them marching on Jerusalem. That's actually proximity as well. We have another treat for you tonight. We've got a map. You have that map?
4: This is a map.
2: If you took the nations from this passage, And you mapped them to their present day locations. And then if you took other passages that talk about the last days, and you mapped those nations, you get a map that looks like this. The red all around there, wow, it happens to be ten nations. Ten horns. Ten nations found in the book of Revelation. You know, you see that purple right there? Yeah, that's Shishak. That is the final prostitute. Mystery Babylon. And I don't know if you can see it from
3: there. But you Barely. see that
2: little, little portion <laughs> of the land. The little bit of yellow right there. Yeah, that's Israel. That's Ooh. God's people. And God is going to take that cup of wrath from his people's hands. And he is going to tread around the <laughs> nations.
4: Like a wine
2: yeah. press. And he's going to make them drink it. Yeah. That's our God. Come on. When. When everything looks like it is desperate, desolate, like there is no hope for God's nation Israel, he is literally going to make the nations around his people drink the cup of his wrath, and he is going to stomp on them, and their blood is going to reach like the horse's
0: bridle and beyond. And it's not cryptic anymore. We've got like 18 minutes left. Are you being fed? Oh, yes. yes. Suffice it to say, can you all see that tiny little yellow speck there? Yes. yes. I don't imagine that if we divide it again or again or again, we'll achieve world peace. Do you know why? Because the Bible says what is going to happen. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, Saints, we're about to cover an enormous amount of ground. <laughs> we have to. Yeah. yeah. Pastor Wade, if you wouldn't mind leaving that slide up as we go through the context, Brother Linton. You can get 27 through the end of the chapter with a full preparation to be interrupted numerous times.
6: (laughs) Then tell them this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says drink, get drunk.
0: He's not Baptist.
6: And fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them this is what the Lord Almighty says. You must drink it. Drink it! See, I am begin- I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. And you will indeed and will you indeed go unpunished?
3: All right, saints. You see that question mark in your Bible? Will you indeed go unpunished? Hear the Lord's answer in response to this.
6: You will not go unpunished. For I am calling down a sword upon all who live Ooh. on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty.
0: Very interesting take on the seals in Revelation. The cup of wrath has to do with swords and conquerors being unleashed. Very interesting take on Matthew 24, where nation begins to rise against nation. Yeah. But we don't have time for that. We've got to get you in bed at a certain hour. <laughs> You'd be the first to fall asleep. Don't act like that. <laughs>
6: Now now prophesy all these words against them and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes, shout against all who
3: live on the earth. All right, saints, there are quite a few things here that we're not going to take the time to develop, but you will see the Lord is going to roar in an increasing fashion. In fact, he will return as he said he would. As the son of David, as the lion of Judah. Yeah, even spoke about an imposter who was like a lion that wished to imitate the Almighty. Now, if you were to take the time to read Isaiah 63, or perhaps Revelation 14 and Revelation 19, it would describe a second coming of Jesus that is lion-like and roaring in all of its majesty. In fact, his garments are dripping with blood from washing and stomping out this entire wine press around his people. That little sliver in the center. He specifically says,
0: like one treading out the grapes. The text says he will shout like those who tread the grapes. I don't know how we
3: could miss that. Get verse 31. All right, pause here. This sound's just like poetry or language. Consider the term resound. We're saying that there's a central point of impact and something is resounding outward like a ripple effect. I wonder where that might be to the ends of the earth.
0: Think of a, a rock being thrown in a large body of water for a minute, okay? And those rings going out from there. Y'all got that picture? If judgment begins with the house of God, what would be the result of those rippling effects? Come on. Yeah. God has been judging his own people, including us throughout history. And because we're sons, it's judgment unto life. Yes. Amen. But if after watching the sons of God get spanked for centuries, the nations only participate in spanking and they do not correct their behavior, Ooh. then he trods out the winepress of his fury upon them. Wow. That is the overriding message of this chapter of Jeremiah.
3: Take us down, Linton. For the Lord will bring charges
6: against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation.
0: Mm-hmm. Nation Almighty. will rise against nation.
6: Yeah. A mighty storm is rising. Those slain by the Lord will be everywhere. Hey, do you you want
0: to know what the mighty storm rising from the ends of the earth is? Uh It is the coming of the Lord. Almost every reference to His coming is a storm cloud. It takes weird Christian artists that weren't really Christians from the medieval times to put Him on fluffy white clouds. It's a storm to the nation.
6: Not be mourned or gathered up or buried, but they will be like refuse lying on the ground.
4: Mm.
6: Weep and wail, you shepherds. Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock. For your time to be slaughtered has come. You will fall and be shattered like five potters.
0: Look, we we're almost out of time. But you gotta get this. Usually shepherds and flocks are an idiom relating to God's people. In this case. He's saying the same way that I judge the shepherds over my flocks. I'm going to judge the shepherds over the flocks of the nations. Mm -hmm. What is more than that, in Jeremiah 19, when there was a generation of people that were wicked and adulterous in his own flock, he broke that jar. He remolds the nation out of the same lump of clay, but he broke that jar. He's going to do the same thing to the leaders of nations that are not in his flock, but are servants. That's the overriding theme here. Are y'all beginning to get it? Yeah. Then we'll keep going.
6: The shepherds will have nowhere. Man become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor, because of the Lord's
3: fierce anger. we have just a few things, where show us that picture. <laughs> ah, that'd be good. All
1: right, I'm going to show you my favorite picture. <laughs> this comes from a t-shirt that many of you have seen. <laughs> Did you notice in verse 38 it says, like a lion he will leave his lair? Like a lion, like the lion of the tribe of Judah that has triumphed, he will leave his lair to save his people. But I want you just to focus in on that for a second. This picture speaks so many things. So many things to us. It speaks to us about the perseverance of the people of Israel. It speaks to us about God's sovereignty and the way that he brought them into Egypt in judgment. But he used them to judge ancient Egypt. He used Israel to do the same thing to the Philistines, the same thing to the Assyrians, the same thing to the Babylonians, same thing to the Persians. we got to ask, where are the Greeks today? Come on. Well, they might be at Nico Nico, but I have a slight feeling that those aren't real Greeks. You can find their unshaven faces ever, or their shaven faces <laughs> everywhere. What happened to the Roman Empire, church? What happened to the Byzantine Empire, the Crusaders, the Spanish Empire, Nazi Germany? Where is Soviet Union today? It's because God has used his people over and over to bear his judgments so that he can also use them to judge the wicked nations that he used to judge them. And you want to know what's beautiful about this? They have never quit, not once. The nation of Israel has not once stood up as a nation and said, we are tired of being chosen. We don't want to go through this anymore. I found this shirt in Israel and we kind of cut the bottom off. And you see where it says, Iran, in question marks at the very bottom. It says, Israel's got friends in the highest of places. So be nice. (laughs) (laughs) You see the people of Israel today, they know that they're chosen. They know that judgment falls on them, but they also know that God is going to use them and he's going to come back and judge the nations around him. What if we as Christians had that same kind of determined uh, vigor inside of us? What if we as Christians had the resolve to say, I am not going to buckle under God's judgment. I'm going to stand up in it because of what God will do through it in the nations around me. What if... What if that means judgment? Well, what if that also means salvation for the nations?
3: Saints, please read uh, verse 38 again for me, Linton. Just hear Like a lion, he will leave his lair, and their land will become desolate. Because of the sword of the oppressor, I want to read to you a familiar passage, and I want you to put it in context of the gravity of the map that you just saw. The gravity of the fact that God begins by disciplining his sons, but it is not the final outcome. This is from Revelation 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Not one out of the entire map, not from any other nation not from any other power that was over the nations, was able to look into it. And I began to weep, John speaking loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered. Come on. Saints, I think there's entirely too much fear in us on a daily basis because we don't know the king that we serve. Come on. You're concerned about your next workday. You're fearful that in your remembrance homework, yours won't stack up to the next guy. Come on. Even in a series about securing sonship, you are fighting against your own insecurity. I can see your eyes. We're family and at the end of a meeting. It's time that we behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That we look into the future and see that the root of David is actually coming. He has triumphed. Now, if we will stand with him, not just in pretense, not just to gain a social acceptability in this room, but your whole life, your next hour, what you're going to do with your afternoon, with your evening, is about serving that son of David. That triumph is something that you can participate in and will define your life. So, you remember that
0: we told this rather quaint little story to help you understand the chapter? Quote, what we're going to encounter tonight is a little bit like a man with his son and many servants. The man is displeased. With his son and his servants are being disobedient. So the man takes one of the servants and commands the servant to spank his son. After the son is corrected, the man then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in order and saves the one who spanked his son for last. There was a son with his father and it was God's will to crush him. (laughs) And he used servants in his house to spank his own son. But he's not going to hold those servants guiltless unless of course they fall in love with the son and fight for the son and are excited about the son's example for their benefit (laughs) Unless they become sons themselves. Is he not a good father that he would do that with his own son to teach us? How dare we be scared? (laughs) How dare we be cowardly? Because that paddle was in our hands. Mm. We are the ones that spanked the son with every act of disobedience. And the only way that we stand in that judgment to come is to kiss the Son Amen. and love the Son yeah. and serve the Son so that we are considered sons in his house by adoption. Come on. Stand to your feet and make your calling and your election clear.
2: son of the living God in his house tonight. That's a right that all too often you too easily give up, you too easily doubt, you too easily throw down the drain, but as you stand here tonight, tonight you need to get the revelation from heaven that you have the right to stand as a son of the living God. Amen. He's extended that right to you tonight. Let us pray and ask the Lord to transform the areas that still remain where we do not act like sons, and yet we need to act like his sons.